Uh, Acts 19, that's where we're at. Not for long. Maybe. Last week we looked at the teaching ministry of the Apostle Paul in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, how he reasoned from the scriptures at the synagogue and hall of Tyrannus. We learned that God performed extraordinary, it said, extraordinary miracles through Paul to authenticate his preaching, teaching, reasoning. We learned about the Jewish exorcists, the sons of Skeva or Skeva, who attempted to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus, but were rebuffed and beaten by a possessed man. And how the whole town basically had heard about that. Um, we learned that God worked three purposes through the Skeva event. You remember what they were? The first one was the extolment of the Lord Jesus, the lifting up of his name. He had this idea that he was sort of being blasphemed. His name was being used for, for the wrong reasons. Things were being done that were, he was not doing, but they were being attributed to him through these sons of Sceva. And so the name of Jesus was correctly extolled rather than being blasphemed. We learned that in verse 17. The enlightenment of the church that was verses 18 to 19. All these people who had already believed in Jesus Christ, already been baptized, I would imagine, because that's the pattern in Acts, they realized through this Sons of Sceva thing that they had some old patterns in their lives and black magic books and these sorts of ties to the Ephesian religion. And they realized, well, look what happened with those guys. We're not supposed to be engaged in this stuff anymore. So they were enlightened that they were still in sin in a sense and they repented and burned those books and did these things. It was really amazing. And then we had the expansion of the word of the Lord in verse 20. The expansion. The word kept going out. It was spreading. You know, people were hearing it throughout Ephesus and throughout um, Asia Minor, if you will. And so those are the three things. That was verses 8 through 20. This morning, we're going to pick back up at verses 21 and 23 and just try to continue to move through through the narrative, all right? Are you ready? Show me some life. <laughs> Isn't it tough, though, sometimes? You come down here, and you're a little, you know, groggy and, and a little tired and, and whatever, and that, that's why God made coffee, you know? Obviously, I've had too much, as Ann pointed out earlier. But I feel good. I feel good. I had a great night last night with friends. We just hung out. It was great. And, and today I feel good. So let me pray once more before we begin to look at the text. Father God, open our hearts and minds to the truth. Without your supernatural aid, we'll just hear a bunch of words. And so speak to us. Give us, through the Holy Spirit, discernment, understanding, wisdom, how to apply these things and to live them out. Lord, I pray that you would do a great work in our midst today, and not just in our midst, but in our lives, in our hearts, that some here probably have yet to come to know you in a saving way. Lord, I pray that you would send out the gospel in an efficacious, effectual way, Lord. And, uh, and, and, and then for those who do know you, who are following you, Lord, I pray that the church would be built up here, edified in this moment. And so thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time of study and for your word, which I believe is the greatest 
gift you've ever given to humanity, especially to the church. And so thank you, Lord, uh, and uh, may you be glorified now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 21 to 22. Now, after these events, speaking of the Sceva deal and the church, you know, enlightenment and these sorts of things. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit, capitalized, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, this is what he said, after I have been there, I must also see Rome 22, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. In the midst of all that was happening in Ephesus, because we've we've already seen how the church was repenting of its black magic and these things. We're we're seeing how the gospel is going out. We're, We're seeing how there's a revival taking place, a true, real revival, in the midst of all these wonderful things, Paul may have experienced another divine encounter with the Lord through a vision or something of that nature. It looks like he received instructions from the Lord, from the Holy Spirit, to go back through Macedonia and Achaia to strengthen the churches he planted, and to go to Jerusalem to to maybe give another report to the apostles, and and maybe to preach the gospel there, And and then lastly, to go to Rome. This scene parallels Luke 9, 51, and then Luke 13, 34 through 35. In those texts, we read about Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem. He said to his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. And must in the Greek denotes an attitude of strong determination, like I am going to go, I must go, I have to go, almost in a requirement sort of sense is what Jesus was conveying when he said, I must go. And the reference there in Luke's gospel in both places has to do with the Lord's final trip to Jerusalem and his Passion Week. This would be his last visit to Jerusalem before his death, betrayal, death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem to do what? To complete his earthly ministry. Nothing would stop him from doing that. He was absolutely determined. He had set his face towards doing that and accomplishing those goals. And even Peter, his you know, beloved disciple, right-hand man, had tried to thwart him on this idea knowing that it would be dangerous. And he, and he said, Lord, it must not be so. You must not go and these sorts of things. And, of course... Jesus rebuked him. Jesus rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. You do not know the will of God. It was Jesus's or God's prerogative that he go and to do what he had to do. But he was no less determined to go. He set his face on doing it. And in our text, we see something very similar. Paul said, I must see Rome. I must see Rome. Yes, he had to go to some other places. But he says, I must see Rome. Rome, the same Greek word is used there as it is in terms of must. The word must is used in back in Luke 9 and Luke 13. Paul was therefore determined to go to Rome as Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he did, Paul did eventually make it to Rome. And can you guess what happened to him there in Rome? He was imprisoned and killed. 
So the parallels between uh, Luke 9 and Luke 13 in our section here, the parallels would be very simple. Jesus was resolved and set his face towards Jerusalem. Paul was resolved and, and in his spirit, as it says, and set his face towards Rome. And, and Jesus entered Jerusalem and, and preached the truth. And, and Paul entered Rome and preached the truth. And, and while in Jerusalem, Jesus was arrested, tried, and killed. And while in Rome, Paul was arrested, tried, and killed. Paul said something quite marvelous in Philippians 3.10. He said, I want to share in Christ's sufferings and become like him in his death. Paul's wish came true at Rome. Now, does any of this stuff, why, Phil, do you always bring up these parallels? Why, Phil, do you do these things? Are you wasting our time with this information? How is this relevant to us? Do any of these parallels, does this parallelization that you're making, does it have anything to do us do with us any relevance whatsoever does it apply to us absolutely it applies the same selfless sacrificial living paul exhibited is required of all christians all christians are called to set their face towards heaven and to die to their sinful desires and to die to their flesh and to die to the world. Some believers are even summoned to die physically at the hands of persecutors. Paul, the rest of the apostles with the exception of John. Jesus had said to his disciples, take up your cross and deny yourself and, and anyone who seeks to save his life will lose his life and anyone who loses his life for me will gain his life. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer rightly put it, and I've probably read this quote before, when Christ bids a man to come, he bids him to come and die, to come and die. This is the kind of commitment, this is the kind of allegiance that the Lord, no, does not seek from his disciples, but that he requires from his disciples, that he demands from his disciples. Listen to this marvelous excerpt from a book that I've been reading entitled An Infinite Journey by Andrew Davis. It's a fantastic book about sanctification. Quote, in the spring of 1194, during the third crusade to the Holy Land, Crusader Henry of Champagne went to a mysterious castle in the rugged mountain, mountainous region of the Nizari in Syria to meet with Abu Mansur, the notorious old man of the mountain. This man was the leader of the most dreaded commandos of that era, the assassins, who were specially trained to sneak into enemy fortresses and assassinate a king or other key figure on whom a contract had been settled. Abu Mansur welcomed Henry and entertained him with a lavish feast. At the end of the feast, to prove the unswerving loyalty of his soldiers, Abu Mansur summoned two men and commanded them to fling themselves from the ramparts of the castle. Without hesitation, these two men obeyed and hurled themselves down to their deaths. He goes on to say, this story rightly horrifies 
our modern sensibilities. But the fact is, the most loving and gentle emperor in the history of the world, Jesus Christ, commands his subjects to do something vastly more difficult. Not just once, but possibly hundreds of times a day, he commands us to die to ourself, to sacrifice ourselves for his glory. He summons us forward and commands us to lay down our lives, to die before angels and demons, before friends and foes. The perfection of the Christian life is this, a constant death. What Paul calls, in a mysterious paradox, a living sacrifice. You see, Christ calls us very much to do what Abu Mansur called his men to do. Christ may never say, stand on the precipice of this tower and throw yourself off. What a waste of a disciple. But he no less calls us to die. No less. He calls us to be as Paul was. To set our faces towards heaven. Which means to seek his glory his honor, his cause, his kingdom, above all other things. And it means to die to self. That we would literally be in a wrestling match our entire lives, wrestling that old man and that old sinful nature to the floor and stomping it in the head. That we would die to ourselves. This parallel that we see in the text is exactly what a disciple of Jesus has been called to do. You can see its relevance. It is the same thing for us. And we could totally wrap up the sermon with that, couldn't we? Go into communion and there'd probably be some tears and all that, but there's much, much more to talk about. Next, Paul calls for two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to go into Macedonia ahead of him. Erastus is mentioned in Romans 16.23 and 2 Tim 4.20 and may have been the treasurer of Corinth. We don't know for sure, but it seems to be that way. The Holy Spirit and the gospel were prevailing over the hearts, however, at the same time that he's called these two men to go ahead. The Holy Spirit and the gospel were prevailing over the hearts of the Ephesians and the, and the church was growing exponentially as it had done in the early days at Jerusalem, maybe at the time of Pentecost and right after. And, and a genuine revival, as I said, had broken out. But Paul had to remain, he had to send these guys forward while he remained in Ephesus, in this part of Asia, to do what? To equip these new believers, all these people who were coming to faith and, and to appoint elders as overseers and, 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 and to do these sorts of things. He had to stay and remain for a while, and the text says he did. He sent them off, go through Macedonia and go check on the churches. I'll hang out here for a little while, continue to work on these believers. And so he had resolved in his spirit to do some things, to go to Jerusalem and Rome and these things, but it would be a little later. Now, verses 23 through 41 have to do with one narrative in particular. It's basically one storyline. And there's always a great risk that when you take a story 
and divide it into little verses or these sorts of things that you lose the essence of the story by trying to flesh out all the verses. And so in, attempt, in an attempt to not lose the, the true and most impactful, I would say, thing that Christ has for us in his word today through the story, I'm going to break it up, not verse by verse, but into sections that we might analyze and study and dissect it in sections. So you'll notice I'll be calling out several verses at a time. I think that's the best way to teach it. So this whole section, 23 through 41, really has to do with one particular narrative. Back in, and here would be the context for it, back in verses 18 to 19, we saw, and we've already alluded to this, mentioned it, we saw many new believers come forward in repentance of their idolatry. They burned their religious books. They gathered in the town center or the agora and did this. Now this was a victorious moment for the church, for the kingdom of God, if you will. The casting down of idols is always a good and glorious thing. Always. It's a wonderful thing. But many in Ephesus became alarmed at the sight of all these Christians burning their religious books. Okay? Anxiety and, and, and fear gripped many of the people, especially the metal workers. And that's what this narrative has to do with. Think of it like this. We've already read the part where the church responds to the Sceva episode and they respond to the Holy Spirit's calling on their lives and they repent and all that. That was the church's response. This particular narrative, 23 through 41, has to do with the community's response to the church. And so that's why we're studying it in blocks and in totality. And I'd, I'd like to begin by studying this, this singular narrative with section one, which I call the threat of the church, which is what we see in verses 23 through 24. It says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. The people of Ephesus were enraptured with this goddess called Artemis. And they were fully engaged in the cultic religion that worshipped her. In fact, the cult of Artemis was probably one of the most widely followed cults in the Greco-Roman world. Life in Ephesus literally revolved around this goddess. She was the city's epicenter and focus. There was a vast array of commerce built around her. Her temple was the largest building in the Greek world. It was, as I said, probably a month ago, maybe three weeks ago, it was four, time lar four times larger than the Parthenon in, in Athens, which was a massive structure. This thing made it look like, you know, a little McDonald's or something. It was a tiny building in comparison. And it was known as, I mentioned this as well, as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was quite a building. Artemis was believed by Greeks to be the goddess of fertility and mistress of wild beasts and the daughter of Zeus and Leto and the sister of Apollo and so on and so forth. In Roman religion, which was a little bit different, she was called Diana. Now, Demetrius, the silversmith, if you will, was a sort of general contractor for the cult of Artemis. He built silver shrines in honor of the goddess, and he employed a small army of craftsmen, or at the very least, subbed out a whole lot of work to all these guys who were skilled in that type of labor. He was a wealthy man, probably far more wealthy than most people that we would think are wealthy today in Hollywood and other places. He was an extraordinarily wealthy man, because business was successful. 
he took notice of a strange, as these things are playing out, he took strange of a strange and unfamiliar movement that was occurring in town. He saw multitudes of people, Ephesians, coming together and professing faith in Christ and confessing their sins together in a public setting and repenting of idolatry by burning their religious books. He witnessed these things. And the sight of these things playing out on all these people was very alarming to him. He was alarmed by what he witnessed. He felt that his business and his religion were falling under attack. He began to see the church, or as it's referred to in the chapter, the way, as a countercultural anomaly which threatened the very existence of all Ephesians. Now this is in all honesty how the church should be viewed in our culture. Our message, the gospel, is threatening, very threatening, because it declares that things aren't as they seem, that people are actually depraved and dead in sin, and, of course, bound for eternal destruction in hell, and, of course, that Jesus Christ is the narrow path, and that faith in him is the only way of salvation. That's a threatening message. It challenges the very core of sinful people who believe they are good who believe that all paths lead to heaven, who believe that their good works lead to heaven, who believe all sorts of concoctions of the world and of the flesh and of the devil. And then when you multiply this, you you think of when believers begin to live out the gospel by turning away from the world and, and the idols to Christ The threat, you know, the proclamation is a threat in and of itself. But when believers begin to live out what they're hearing and turning from idols, the threat multiplies exponentially. It becomes, you can taste it. You can see the results. It's not just something that people hear. It's something that people hear and actually do. Now, that takes the threat and multiplies it at a whole another level. The gospel, in a sense, when people obey it and live it out, it is made real. And everyone can see the results. And, and the change that occurs takes, you know, the world takes notice of this change. And we all know that the world never gives over its offspring without a fight. Never. The devil is is always on alert. He's always on standby. He's always ready to dispatch his demons, to dispatch his human servants to any locale in the world at any time to try to disrupt, confuse, and or confuse the work of God. And this is exactly what we see taking place in our text Demetrius, the silversmith, is a servant of Satan, more than likely unbeknownst to him. He thinks he's doing what's right, but he is a servant of 
the devil. And he feels that he must do something about this. Hey, hey, what's going on here? Look at all of these people who are, who are leaving our camp, if you will, leaving what's normal and comfortable and right to us. They're leaving this to go to this. I've got to do something about this, is how he feels. He feels that it's his duty to preserve the Ephesian way of life and the honor and glory of Artemis. This is how he feels. I must protect what we have. And that leads to number two, Demetrius's speech. Demetrius's speech, verses 25 to 27. It says, these... These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. He gathered all these metal workers together and said, he gives a speech. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius gathered all the metal workers and all the tradesmen and all of the guys and people that had something to do with these things of Ephesus together and he delivered a stirring speech. He was quite the orator. He makes old John Kerry look like a fool. You remember when the election was happening years ago and they kept talking about how he had the best in the universe oratory skills. Demetrius had spectacular oratory skills. He gathers them together and gives this stirring speech. Yeah, sort of reminds me of when I worked at Good Guys years ago. You remember the electronics chain? The company was suffering and the executives brought all the employees together at one locale, 3,000 men and women over in San Ramon, I believe it was in, for a day-long conference. And I remember sitting there all day going, kill me now. I remember hearing statements like, you can make a decent income working at good guys if you just work hard enough. And we all know, maybe not all, but most know that the company went belly up a few years later. Demetrius, in a way, began his speech the same way. He, Our wealth comes from working in the metal trades, he says. You see, good guys was out to save their neck. They knew they were going down the tubes, and so they got everyone together for a pep talk. Demetrius feels the same way as those good guys' executives. We can all make a good living if we just all pull our weight. Same thing taking place here. Demetrius began his speech with a similar statement to the good guys' execs. Our wealth comes from working in the metal trains. Trades. Demetrius obviously knew how to get people's attention. Talking about money works almost every time, doesn't it? Talking about money gets people's ears to perk up. Money! You ever watch SpongeBob? Money! Who's that? Mr. Krabs, right? We watch, a favorite show of ours is, is uh, Three's Company. Jack Tripper's just hilarious. 
And, and they're scheming on how to get Larry involved in something. He's upstairs, and there's no way he'll come downstairs. And, and Jack says, I know how to get him down. He picks up the phone, calls Larry. Larry goes, hello. He goes, money. Next thing you know, Larry flies through the door. Money? That's what Demetrius did. Money. And people said, oh, pay attention. Their ears perked up. It works every time. His opening line, our trade is being threatened, if you will. Our wealth comes from this trade, basically got the attention of the crowd. And then he went on to identify the movement, if you will, and its leader. I'll paraphrase what he said. Paul in Ephesus and, and throughout Asia are being, are, are, are people, pardon me, people in Ephesus and, and throughout Asia are being persuaded by Paul to, to turn away from our religion. He preaches that gods made with hands are not real gods. Our trades are, 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 are basically in jeopardy. And by mentioning Paul here, he basically puts the blame on Paul. There's someone to blame here for this grand threat that we're all facing. His name is Paul. He's gone throughout all of Asia and turned everyone away. And then Demetrius goes on to present three things that were being threatened by Paul's message and work. He kind of opens with a money statement, gets their attention. He says, Paul's to blame. And he said, here's why. Here are the things that Paul's gospel, whatever this thing he's doing, here's what they actually threaten. A, their trade. Their trade. Okay, these were silversmiths and metal workers. Paul's message, turning people away from Artemis, if you will, turns them away from their trade, which is to make things in glory and honor of, of Artemis. He, he says this, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. And what is their trade? Their trade is how they make money. And what is their money? Their security. You don't think that Artemis was really their false god. Money was. Artemis was just a means to make the money, which was the true god. But their trade being threatened has more to do than anything else with them losing money and losing the very thing that brings them a sense of security. Fat bank accounts, IRAs, CDs, investments, B, their temple. This was something that was being threatened. Their trade, their money, security, but also their temple, their temple, their temple. He says the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And, and what does their temple represent? It represents their purpose in life. A little further down, we see a speech given by another man there, the clerk of the city mayor, and he says, we all know that Ephesus is the city that's charged with the responsibility as the keeper of the temple. Being the keeper of the temple means, hey, the temple's ours and we, and, and we take care of it. And, and that's our purpose as a city. And that's our purpose as a people is to be the keeper of the temple. Is to keep this religion going and to keep that meteorite polished and, and to serve her, this goddess Artemis, Diana, and these things. So we have their trade, money and security. We have their temple. That's their purpose. We're the keepers of it. And then see their Thea. Thea is, right, three T's. Thea. Thea is Greek 
for goddess. Greek for goddess there, goddess. And, and they said this of her. Dimitri said, she may even be deposed from her magnificence. And what does their thea represent? Their sense of identity. They gain their sense of identity from the goddess. You think about this for a moment. She may even be deposed from her magnificence. They're the ones that created her and built her. And when they say she's magnificent, what are they saying about themselves? We're magnificent. She actually translated should be our magnificence is being threatened. Our identity as a magnificent people, top notch, is being threatened. You see, we have their money and security. We have their purpose in life. And we have their sense of identity. Which is the very reason why people concoct and construct and create in their imaginations idols to begin with. An idol isn't a false god. It's a false god, but an idol is never a god. God knows that there's no other gods. There's no other gods. There's only one god, God himself, Jehovah, the Godhead. But what we do as people is we create idols and call them gods. And ultimately, we create them to serve our purposes, to serve our likes, to save us, to do these things. We create idols that they might produce within us a sense of security. I've got these things out here. They're the things I cling to. I draw my sense of security by these. And and the more I have, the more secure I feel. Or serving the idols becomes the purpose in life. My idol is money. I serve my idol by working hard and by, you know, by rejecting, by neglecting my family, by working all these extra hours, by amassing money and investing and buying all these properties and doing all this stuff. And, and, and ultimately, that's my purpose in life is to serve my God, which is actually money. Money is the idol it becomes. And then, and then how does this work for us too? And, and then the, the Thea, the goddess, you know, we, we have this goddess, we have this idol that we've created to serve our purposes, and then we draw our identity from it. Because of the idol that we have created in worship, which is ultimately money, we buy all these things, and our identity gets wrapped up in all the stuff that we can buy and purchase. You've heard it said, you know, people buy these very expensive cars Because their identity is wrapped up in it. They want everyone to know that they have money. They want everyone to know that they have buying power. And they really don't care. They really don't emit any sense that they really care that people, they actually really think about them. It's just what the persona that they can create. You see, we do these very same things with maybe not a big meteorite goddess, but with a million other things. We take the good things that God has blessed us with to bring us joy and, 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 and you know, a, a sense of maybe, I don't know, happiness or something like that. He, he brings these things for, for, the, for, the, for our pleasure because he's a good God and all the things that he brings down are good things. They all flow down from him and yet we take them and we, we can reconstruct them and then, and then we, we put too much value on them. We begin to draw our trade or security and temple and life and purpose and, and, and identity in these things. And this is exactly what these people were doing. And it's exactly what all people do. And so Demetrius spoke in such a way to appeal to 
to really the depth of their idolatry and to their money and purpose and identity. This is why he's such a fantastic orator. He knew exactly what to say to get the people really fired up. Number three, the zeal of the crowd. Verses 28 through 29. When they heard this, they were enraged. How dare you threaten my security, purpose, or identity, which is what the gospel does. It says, none of those things can deliver. You'll die and be buried with them, and they'll be used against you in the court of God. And they were outraged and enraged and crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You see the pull to idolatry here? How twisted their thinking is? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, 29, so the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. The crowd literally exploded when they heard Demetrius' speech. Filled with zeal towards the source for their security, purpose, and identity, they began to rush down the city streets like football cheerleaders on the sideline chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. As the crowd moved from street to street, it grew in size as more and more townspeople joined in. They were headed for the theater, which was the loudest and most visible place in the city. What a perfect place to stage a protest. From there, they could capture the attention of all the Ephesians. This theater could seat about 24,000, 25,000 people. Huge civic assemblies were, were held there three times a year. It was literally cut, you know, impressively into the western slope of Mount Pion, facing toward the harbor. Everyone could see this theater in the city. It is actually preserved today. If you go to Ephesus, you can see it. It's probably the most impressive of all the ancient structures there. The city was thrown into confusion. The rest of the city, this group was confused, no doubt, but the, the rest of the city was thrown into confusion as, as onlookers saw this mob flying down the streets and they're trying to figure out what in the heck is going on. Man, I was just frying up some tilapia, chilling, got my barbecue on, and all of a sudden this flies through the street. Ah! The whole city was going, what on earth? Now, while en route, this tornadoous tumult, if you will, while it was en route to the theater, it, it, it grabbed up and snatched up two of Paul's Macedonian travel buddies, Gaius and Aristarchus. They were swept up and dragged along. Gaius here is not to be confused with Gaius of Derby in Acts 24. I think it's a different person, the Gaius of our text was a different man from a Macedonian city like Philippi, Thessalonica, or Berea. The other one was from Derby, and we'll read about him soon. Aristarchus is named in other places in the New Testament like Acts 20, verse 4, 27, 2, Colossians 4, 10, Philemon, verse 24. Now, here's what's interesting. Dragging right there in your verse is sunarpazo. Sunarpazo in Greek. And it means to be seized and forced. Okay, so we get the idea here that Gaius and Aristarchus did not desire to be a part of this thing. They were trying to do their own thing at their own place, and all of a sudden they got ripped out of wherever they were, pulled through a window, pulled through a door, pulled off a corner, pulled out of a teaching moment, discipleship moment. I don't know what they were doing, but they did not want to be a part of this thing. They were grabbed, snatched, and thrown into the tumult. 
You, you might say that they were taken as hostages. Dragging also connotes a struggle. They resisted. We don't want to be a part of this. But the angry crowd took them by force. Now the crowd made it to the theater and poured through the entrance like motor oil through a funnel. They just kind of poured into this thing and filled this theater. Number four, the attempt of Paul. Verses 30 through 31. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. It would appear that Paul was not at the place where Demetrius spoke and fired up the crowd. He may have been at the hall of Tyrannus reasoning from the scriptures. The tumult may have passed by his location causing him to ask others what was going on. When he learned that it had something to do with his work and ministry, his name... Uh, and that his companions had been abducted, he tried to enter the theater to give a defense, to try to help. But his own disciples stopped him from going in. I believe they feared for his life. But Paul was determined because he wasn't about to abandon Gaius or Aristarchus or the ministry. Uh, he wasn't afraid. He may have been outside the door saying, I'm going in. I'm going to do something about this. There's too much at stake. He may have even tried to push past his disciples, but then some of his friends, the Asiarchs, got involved. The Asiarchs were members of the aristocracy who were dedicated to promoting Roman interests. One Asiarch was elected to rule and serve at a time, but re the retirees, those who serve as Asiarchs, get to keep the title. It's an honorable title. They keep it for the rest of their lives. Paul had become with several of these honorable high-status men. Their friendship with Paul and concern for him shows that they did not believe that he or his group was at fault. They did not want to see their friend mistreated or harmed, so they urged him, do not venture into the theater. It's dangerous, man. Number five, the confusion of the crowd. Verses 32 through 34. Now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and, and most of them did not know why they had come together. <laughs> Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Now section 5 here gives us a glimpse of, of what was going on in the theater absolute pandemonium. The crowd was confused and, and, and chaotic. Some of the people there knew why they were there and others had no idea. It's always amazed me at how idle people take notice of a commotion and then inject themselves into it while remaining absolutely clueless as to what's going on. You've seen this before. During the last round of L.A. riots, I, I noticed this phenomenon. You know, on TV, I watched rioters break down the doors and windows of their own neighborhood stores, which made no sense to me. You know, they break down the doors and the windows, and, and next thing you know, you know, they're, they're filing into the place and start looting it. Next thing you know, people are, that aren't involved in any of this stuff, they're hiding in their homes. They start to come out the doors and pour into, the, into these places, into these stores, along with the rioters, 
And they strip the place like a piranha does a clumsy animal that falls into the Amazon. People that are sitting on their porch going, I ain't getting involved in that. Look, Benny's is open. And they run in there and start stealing stuff. They inject themselves into something that they really had nothing to do with. Idle hands are the devil's work. They're just sitting around watching it play out and they jump in. And this is what played out here is it's moving from street to street to street. People are sitting there going, that looks cool. And they get in there and then it all pours into the theater and, and people are there chanting for Artemis and people in there are chanting for Artemis and have no idea why. They don't even know there's a threat. They're just there because it's high energy and exciting and maybe I'll be able to get something free out of it. Who knows? That some of the people in, obviously in the theater at this point were not angry rioters. They were not there to fight for what they believed was a just cause or, or you know, they, they were just opportunists. They just got involved to get involved because it was busy. It is similar in our text there as just the L.A. riots idea. All sorts of people were involved, but confusion was rampant and chaos ensued. No wonder the disciples and, and Asiarchs held Paul back. These people don't know what they want. And they look ticked. Paul might have been torn to pieces. And an interesting thing to note here is that there were Jews in the crowd. And I don't believe the Jews that were involved were there to riot, but there to protect their own interests. They didn't want the Ephesians to think that, that they were associated with Paul and the Christians. You see, a lot of times amongst pagans, they assumed that these Jews and the Christians are the same thing. The Christians are always in the Jewish synagogues teaching about Jesus, and, and so they, you know, they, they, they couldn't disassociate Jews from Christians. They kind of thought it was all the same thing. Now, the Jews knew this. They didn't want the Ephesians to think that we're part of this thing. Don't wipe us out too. And so what did they do? They appointed one of their leaders, Alexander, to speak on their behalf. They said, hey, Alexander, this would be a good time to give a defense for us and to tell all these people that we don't have anything to do with this. And we're cool. We're actually on their team in a way. And when Alexander came forward to defend the Jews, the Ephesians figured out that he was Jewish. I love how the providence of God plays out. The Jews are there to protect themselves, and they send this guy forward. And, and then all of a sudden, the crowd can tell somehow that he's Jewish. Look, he's one of their appointees. And they switch back into their cheerleader mode for two hours. They cried, great is Artemis of Ephesus. Great is Artemis of Ephesus. They send a Jew forward. You know what he's there for. Great is Artemis of Ephesus. Shut up. They silenced him. He couldn't make a defense. Six, the intervention of the town clerk, verses 35 through 40. And when the town clerk, he was in their midst there, had quieted the crowd, he said, men, and here's his speech, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper? of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls 
Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. The town clerk, or we would think of him as a mayor, may have been the only reasonable and rational Ephesian in the theater. He may have been the only one that had any sense about him at this point. The town clerk was the liaison between the town council and the Roman authorities. And what does that mean? That means that his neck was on the line right here during this disruption. If a riot broke out, he would be held accountable. Now this guy, and I think I would have been panicking if I'd have been in his shoes, but this guy was cool, calm, and collected. No wonder he was the mayor. <laughs> if Demetrius had been in his position, Ephesus would have been destroyed at that very moment. And this town clerk, Mayor, he, he stood up and began to deliver a counter speech, countering Demetrius. Demetrius riled the people, and the town clerk wanted to chill them out. He began by reminding the people of what they already knew. All the people should have known this. He just reminded them of a of, of fact that they all believed. They had forgotten. Verse 35 to 36, I'll paraphrase it. Ephesus is the temple keeper of the great Artemis. And Ephesus is also the guardian of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. The temple and the stone are proof that no one can deny. Stop acting like we're in danger. Quiet down and do nothing irrational. In verse 37, he implies, he implies that, that they might actually themselves, that they might actually be in violation of dragging innocent men into the theater. You've taken these men down here and they're not sacrilegious and they haven't blasphemed. You're saying they're criminals. I'm saying that you guys are in danger. And he was, these innocent men that he referred to in his speech were Gaius and Aristarchus who were probably frightened. Now, this town clerk was familiar with Gaius and Aristarchus and Paul. He knew that they, what they believed, in a sense, he, he knew what they preached, and he saw the phenomenon himself with people leaving their group to go to Paul's group, if you will. But still inside, he did not feel that they had broken any laws. Plus, he didn't care what they were about or what they said, as long as that temple and that stone were in place. That's what he cared about. You guys are exploding think, thinking that these things are threatened. I'm telling you, this is the largest building in the Greek world. These putzes aren't going to tear it down. And nobody can lift that meteorite. Basically, what he's saying in his speech is, chill out. Nobody is, everyone knows what we're about here and what we have. We have the proofs of that God is here with us with these things. Nobody can take these things from us. That's what he says. So he didn't really care about their message or about the phenomenon, if you will, or the movement. Nobody's going to take from us what we have. That's his attitude. That's his speech. And therefore he said, these men are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. 
They can't change what everyone already knows. It's all here. It's ours. They're nothing. That's what he says. In verse 38, he reminds them of their judicial protocol. We have laws in place, guys, and this ain't them. Paraphrased again, if Demetrius, is what he says, if Demetrius and the craftsmen have a complaint, have them bring it before the courts, which are open, and the judges are available. You guys can't do what you're doing. We have a system of justice in place. File a darn complaint. This isn't way, the way to deal with these things. In verses 39 through 40, he tells them that they are to cease from their current pursuits. Stop this and handle it in the regular assembly. Any further action on this matter must be handled in the regular assembly. You cannot continue to do what you're doing. Do not continue to raise a riot, blow this place apart, kill these guys, whatever it is you're wanting to do. Don't do it. Handle it in court. You see these domestic disputes and things on TV all the time. I love the show Cops, and, 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 and people are always taking it upon themselves to exercise justice in that moment. I punched him. And the cop says, you let us take care of that. You don't do that. Now you're going to jail. Whew. It's the same thing. I punched him. I had to. You let us arrest him and put him in handcuffs and put him in jail all night with four-inch cockroaches. He tells them, don't do this. Don't continue. Or guess what we're in danger of? Being charged with rioting. That was a serious offense. Stop or we're the ones that are going to get in trouble. Really what he was saying is, you're going to get me busted. I'm the mayor. Don't do it. Number seven, and lastly, the dismissal of the crowd. Verse 41. And when he, Demetrius, had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. <laughs> what a turn of events, huh? The town clerk literally pulled the plug on that thing in just a few minutes. They went from confusion and chaos to peace and order in a matter of minutes, literally. It's incredible. And uh, it's true that the scripture says a soft answer does turn away wrath. They all left the theater and the chapter ends. Now what did Paul do Afterwards, after this incredible event, flip over to our last verse, chapter 20, verse 1. I didn't think I was going to be able to get through all this today. What did Paul do afterwards? Chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. I don't sense that he just bolted out of there because of what happened. I think he was trying to be obedient to what the Holy Spirit had led him to do in the first place and maybe that vision or dream that he had. Go to Macedonia, go to Jerusalem, go to Rome. He's just obeying what he was told to do. He didn't flee the city. And before he went, he encouraged the disciples, Gaius, Aristarchus, brush that off. There are worse things that can happen, and they probably will. And you new believers here, 
keep pursuing the Lord and, and listen to the leaders that we're training up and appointing, the elders that we're appointing for you. He, he calls the elders to a meeting a little later in, in Acts, the Ephesian elders. And he said, farewell, I love you. And he departed from Macedonia to go back to those churches that he had planted. Closing. To the Ephesians, the goddess Artemis had become the divine source and provider for their sense of security, for their sense of purpose, and for their sense of identity. But they were all living in a false reality. Demetrius unknowingly hit the nail on the head when he quoted Paul, gods made with hands are not gods. In fact, between 23 and 41, that's the only truthful statement in the whole text. Gods made with hands are not gods. This was the Ephesians' true reality. They had created Artemis. She was no god. She was no goddess. She was no source. She was no provider. She was the end result of their own imaginations, the end result of their own creativity, and the end result of their own skill. This means that the, since they had created her, this means that the Ephesians were ultimately depending upon themselves. The real God, if you will, in Ephesus wasn't Artemis. It was the Ephesians. Artemis was nothing more than the facade they used to mask their own self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and self-effort. And yet the Bible makes it clear that there really isn't any self in these things, particularly in salvation, which is why people create idols as well, that they might be saved by their own creations. The Bible makes it lucidly clear that there is no self in the equation. There, there is no self in salvation. The Bible teaches clearly, lucidly clear. It makes that, that self-sufficiency and, and, and self-reliance and, and, and self-effort amount to a hill of beans. The Bible makes it lucidly clear that, and this is what the gospel says, that, uh, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and to and for the glory of God alone. There is no self, only Christ by faith. And this is what Paul preached in Ephesus and what created the stir.
and I beseech you this morning. Because we're all idolaters in a sense. Do not riot against the truth of the gospel here in your hearts. Do not cling to your idols, which is ultimately clinging to yourself any longer. Cling to Christ alone, for he alone can save you. Whatever you've created, whatever you've imagined, whatever you prefer cannot save you. Will never satisfy you temporarily in the flesh, but not long term. Cling to Christ alone. That is the gospel. And here's what's amazing about the gospel. Here's what's amazing about Christ. He bids us to come to him and to die to ourselves that we might live. That we might become like Abu Mansur's servants. That we might set our gaze upon heaven and die to self and work the cause of Christ and the kingdom of God and proclaim the gospel and have abundant joy. The life that is unimaginable. What a wonderful life he offers. But you must be willing to come and die. It's an all-out surrender. You can't come to him and say, I'm coming, but I'm still clinging to this a little bit. I'm coming to you, Christ, but I'm bringing with you. I have six idols. I'm only bringing three. That's what he says to do with them. You take them to the agora, That's what the Ephesian Christians did. That's what created a stir in their community. And that's what we're to do. Cling to Christ alone. Remember that this week. I must cling to Christ alone for only he can save, can satisfy, only he can provide security, only he can provide purpose, only he can provide me with an identity. Look at this story again. These people had a monolithic building and all this stuff in place and they had no hope. They had all this stuff but they had nothing Christ is everything. He bids you to come to die that you might live.